Good morning. Um, we are back with our Sunday school lesson, and it's pretty early, but I wanted to go ahead and just record something just in case um, we aren't able to meet in person or uh, whatever the case could be. So um, last week we um, finished up chapter 19. So um, that was about... Did Jesus' followers really believe he was God? So we finished up that. The next several chapters um, revolved around the resurrection. And I apologize. I said I was going to go back and read over those and do recording. But time just got away from me this week. So, um, But if you have your book, you're more than welcome to go back and just review that yourself. Um, but we'll just go ahead and get started on chapter 25. I would really like to get finished... Um, before Christmas with our book, um, there's a great Christmas series that I found this morning, and I, I think that you guys would really enjoy it. Um, it's by Max, L of course, you know, I have difficulty saying his name, Lucado, Lucado. Um, anyway, it's, it's titled Because of Bethlehem, so, and it's four, I think it's four weeks, so I would really like to get done with this book, um, as close as possible, you know, probably early December, you know, right after Thanksgiving. So, um, we're going to try, and if not, we'll just take a pause and do our Christmas series, and then we'll pick back up in January with this one. But chapter 25 says, how are the books in the Bible selected? In the last section, we looked at why we as Christians can confidently believe what we do about Jesus. Most importantly, that he was divine, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that he was resurrected. This understanding, of course, comes primarily from an examination of what the Bible says. But how do we know we should trust in we should trust the Bible in the first place? That's the vital subject for this next part of the book. We'll get right to it with a basic first question. How were the books in the Bible selected? Or more formally stated, how do we get to our canon? The word canon C-A-N-O-N, simply means a standard. In the context of the Bible, the canon refers to the writings we consider to be the standard for our faith. The Protestant canon has 39 Old Testament and 27 New Testament books. The Old Testament and New Testament have very different canonizations, histories. Space prohibits me from going into detail on both, so in this chapter, we'll look at the first look at the development of the New Testament canon, in particular, given its special importance to Christianity. If you're interested in learning more about the Old Testament canon, I've listed resources in the endnotes. <clears throat> okay, so first section is titled "A Picture of Winners and Losers." The development of the canon is admittedly not the most exciting topic for most Christians, despite its obvious importance. Ironically, however, the canon is a favorite topic of skeptics. The popular skeptical view of the canon goes something like this. In the first centuries after Jesus, there were many rival versions of Christianity, but the representative writings were suppressed by those in power. Our New Testament books rep represent the version of Christianity that happened to win over time. The winning books weren't picked until some 300 years after Jesus' death, and they won because they found political favor at the time. 
The implication here, of course, is that we have no reason to believe our canon gives us the right of understanding Jesus. New Testament scholar Bart Urim, I'm sorry, you know, I can't, you struggle, I struggle with names. Um, His last name is E-H-R-M-A-N. So Bart promotes this kind of view in the lost scripture books that did not make it into the New Testament. So um, that's a book I believe that he wrote. So here's a segment from his book. The victors in the struggle established Christian orthodoxy, not only won their theological battles, they also rewrote the history of the conflict. Later, later readers then naturally assume that the victorious views had been embraced by the vast majority of Christians from the very beginning, all the way back to Jesus and his closest followers, the apostles. If this view is correct, we have a lot to be concerned about. What if we're getting Jesus all wrong because we've been handed handed books as an unfortunate consequence of political history? After all, it's true that there were many books written about Christianity in the first centuries after Jesus. We know of at least 280. I did not know that. It is also true that our 27 New Testament books weren't officially recognized as the canon until A.D. 393. But the heart of the matter, regardless of the number of books written and when the canon was officially recognized, is this. Which of all these writings tell us the truth about the faith that was taught by the apostles, the people who actually knew Jesus? To answer this, we can look at the early historical consensus of the church fathers. Generally speaking, we can see that there are four categories of books. One, books accepted by all. Two, books accepted by most. Three, books accepted by a few. And four, books rejected by all. Our New Testament books and those books only fall into the first two categories. So that would be books accepted by all and books accepted by most. Okay, the next segment she has um, is early acceptance during the lives of the apostles. The process of scripture recognition started very early in the life of the church. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, the apostle Paul quoted from Luke's writings, calling them part of the scripture. Similarly, the book of 2 Peter referenced Paul's letters as scripture, and that is um, found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Other verses show that the New Testament writings were already being collected and circulated amongst churches during the lives of the apostles. And then she's referencing Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, and Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. All right, the next segment is early acceptance by the apostolic church fathers. Sorry, guys. The apostolic church fathers... And then in parentheses, she has those who wrote the first half of the second century quoted extensively and alluded to almost all of our New Testament books and their writings. This is effectively a stamp of approval from those who personally had contact with the apostles or lived just after them and had received their teaching. New Testament scholar Dr. Craig Blomberg explains The nature and context of these quotations and allusions suggest that these early patristic authors 
viewed such writings as uniquely authoritative and occasionally declared them explicitly to be scripture in the sense of being on par with the Old Testament. While the Apostolic Church Fathers didn't compile any formal list of books similar to a canon, their quotes and allusions provide strong evidence of early support for, for our New Testament books. Key Apostolic Church Fathers include Clement of Rome, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, and Polycarp of Samaria. S-M-Y-R-N-A. Okay. Um, the next part is the emergence of heresies. Heresies. All right. The early church followers didn't compile a formal list of accepted books because they weren't, there wasn't a need yet. But by the middle of the second century, two major heresies, teaching, which that's, those are teachings opposed to accepted doctrine from the apostles, um, so they emerged, prompting the next generation of church fathers to define which writings were authoritative for Christians and which were not. First, there was a man named Marcion who rejected the Old Testament. He denied that Jesus came in flesh and attempted to establish an early canon in line with his personal doctrine. If that doesn't sound like Satan, I'm, I'm not sure what else would. <laughs> um, this included some of Paul's letters and an edited version of Luke. Marcion is the first person we know of who published a fixed collection of New Testament books. Second, there was a movement called Gnosticism. Gnostics believe that only spirit and soul are good, that Jesus only appeared to be human, and that special knowledge available to only a few was the means to salvation. Valentinius was the most well-known Gnostic leader. The New Testament scholar Dr. F. F. Bruce explains the significance of these developments. The distinctive feature of Marcionistism and Valentinianism had this at least in common. They were recognized as innovations. This, the leaders of the Catholic Church knew, was not what they had heard from the beginning, but their followers had had to be shown where those new movements were wrong. If the teachings of Marcion and Valentinus were unsound, what was the sound teaching, and how could it be defined? In other words, it was in response to these deviations from what has been taught since the beginning that the canon started to take shape. All right, so now we're on to shaping the canon, and I'm just going to... Go ahead and warn you that there are a lot of names that I probably won't be able to pronounce. <laughs> so we're just going to do our best. Okay, so over the next 200 years, Christian literature exploded, and we have many more opportunities to read about the debate over which books were considered authoritative. Below are a few historical highlights with approximate dates of writings. Um, so she's got the dates, approximate dates in parentheses. All right, so there are one, two, three, four, five, six um, that uh, are some approximate writings here. So I'm going to try my best to read them, and we will just get through it. Okay, so the first one is um, 
Muratorian Fragment, M-U-R-A-T-O-R-I-A-N, and then Fragment. And the approximate date um, is A.D. 180. Okay, so this anonymous doctrine contains a list of books recognized as authoritative in the late 2nd century. It lists 22 of the books we have today. It does not list Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, or Third John. Aside from the Marcion, aside from Marcion's abridged canon, this is the earliest list of books we have. All right, the next one is Irenaeus, um, I R E N A E U S, and again the date, approximate date is A D one hundred eighty. Irenaeus was a bishop and the student of Polycarp, who knew the Apostle John. He never made a list of accepted books, but appealed to the same writings as listed in the Muratorian fragment, with the exception that he included 1 Peter. All right, the third one is Tertullian, T-E-R-T-U-L-L-I-A-N, and the approximate date is A.D. 207. Right, this is an early Christian apologist, um, which we know apologist means a defender of faith. Um, he acknowledged the first four Gospels we have today and noted they were written by apostles or associates of the apostles. He cited all the writings of our New Testament except Second Peter, James, Second and Third John. He was the first person we know of to actually use the term New Testament. All right, we got three more, and then we're going to have another section. Okay, so then this other one, this next one is um, Origen, so O-R-I-G-E-N. He was a scholar and a theologian. He distinguished three categories of books in his writings, those widely acknowledged, those disputed by some, and those rejected as false doctrine. Widely acknowledged books included the four Gospels, Acts, all of Paul's letters, 1 Peter, 1 John, and Revelation. Disputed books that are now in the New Testament included Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and Jude. Um, and this person, he was the earliest Christian writer to mention 2 Peter. Okay, the next one is Athanius. Um and the approximate date is AD 367. Um, origin, um, it didn't really give a specific date. It just said early 3rd century. Um, but for Ath- Athenius, um, he was a bishop of Alexandria and the most prominent theologian of the 4th century. In an Easter letter to his churches, he named the 27 books that were considered authoritative, the same 27 we recognize today. All right, Council of Hippo. Um, this was approximately AD 393, so shortly after Athenius. Um, this council formally ratified the recognition of the 25 books in our New Testament canon. At that time, it was said that nothing should be read in church under the name of the divine scriptures except can, canonical writings. All right, so we just reviewed that. As you can see from these historical highlights, we can trace the development of our canon to centuries before the Council of Hippo, before the Council of Hippo ruled on it. That sounds so weird to say the Council of Hippo. 
But that's what it says. Um, 20 of our 27 New Testament books were accepted from the very beginning and were never in dispute. The only books that had that some questioned were Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. To conclude this chapter, we'll look briefly at the key reasons why they were questioned. Okay, so now she's got some evidence from the Bible here about why they, um, you know, why people were questioning them. The right, first is Hebrews. The author of Hebrews didn't identify himself, leading to, leading to concerns over the book's authority. Most, however, believe the author was Paul or one of his disciples, giving the book the apostolic authority necessary for acceptance. Okay, next one is James. The book of James raised questions because its emphasis on good works at first appeared to conflict with Paul's emphasis on salvation by grace apart from works. After close inspection, it was determined to be compatible with Paul's teachings. And I know that's something that we discuss quite a bit, you know, you know, saved by grace versus, you know, works. But, you know, we, we are saved by grace. Um, and, you know, we exercise our faith by do it by by showing you know works and and doing exercising our faith um but we're saved by grace alone um second peter there's a marked style difference between one and between first and second peter leading to some question the authenticity of second peter it's now believed that the difference in style can be accounted for can afford by Peter's use of a scribe and the difference in time, topic, and recipients. I thought that was a pretty good point. All right, second and third John. These short books are questioned because of their anonymity, anonymity, sorry guys, and limited circulation. They were later accepted as likely works of the Apostle John. Jude. Jude was questioned by some because it quoted from a non-biblical source, the book of Enoch in Jude 14. Nevertheless, it was recognized by the early church fathers and was eventually canonized. Revelation. Concerns about Revelation weren't raised until the 4th century when a heretical group called the Montanists Okay, I'm going to spell it. M-O-N-T-A-N-I-S-T Yes. Um, so this group tied their doctrines to it. Um, however, key church leaders came to its defense, and its place in the canon was confirmed. So it sounds like this group tried to take Revelation as their own, um, and then the church, you know, defended it. All right. So now we're on to the next part. Sometimes winners deserve to win. There are many early writings about Christianity, but only the ones that were either accepted by all or accepted by most are the ones we have in the New Testament today. These were the books the early church fathers knew were consistent with the apostles' teachings, teaching and were accepted long before they were formally canonized in A.D. 393. F.F. Bruce summarized this history well in the New Testament documents are they reliable? So he, so he wrote this book, and so he summarized, summarized that information. 
So here's what he said. One thing must be empathetic. One thing must be empathetically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in their canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect. So let's turn to the so let's now turn to the books that didn't make the cut. Why were they rejected? Okay, so that's the end of chapter 25. And I'm going to stop right here. And um, so next week, we will be looking at the books that did not make the cut for the Bible. Um, I hope you're enjoying this book um, by Natasha Crane, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, 40 Conversations to Help Them Build a Lasting Faith. Um, I really enjoy her writings. I know we've had um, a great time you know, reading this book, I know part of the time that we've, you know, been in this book, we were in quarantine, and um, I still think, I'm glad that we've been able to find ways to get together, either virtually, through a podcast, um, I'm hoping maybe in person very soon, which um, I anticipate that, you know, occurring very quickly. Um, I think it's important for us to get back together and just to get back into our routine safely. And um, I'll just go ahead and I'll close our podcast in prayer. Dear God, thank you for this um, Sunday that you were able to provide us with a book that helps us understand the Bible and the books in the Bible and just help us to have these conversations with kids um, or other adults um, so that way we can make a case for Christ. And just let us be light into others this week and keep us safe and healthy. And just any prayer requests that we have, um, that you you know what those are and that you will um, help us in those situations. So in your name we pray. Amen.